this one is called uh, Night of Silence. <clears throat>
celebrate the incarnation of our Lord in an unlikely time of the year, July, Christmas in, in July, we praise the Lord Jesus for his duality. And what do I mean by his duality? Because we have to be very careful when we speak about the duality of Jesus that we do not teeter on the, the edge of heresy. We worship Jesus for who he is. Being that he came to suffer and die, he robed himself in flesh. God put on flesh to suffer and die, and we worship Jesus because he is God. Even the way that we say Jesus is God and man, we have to be very careful because yes, he is God and yes, he is man, but he is both simultaneously, he is God-man. And by those theological standards alone, there is no inappropriate time to discuss the birth of our Lord. In fact, the birth, the death, and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ is so interconnected, it is so interrelated, that it is almost an injustice to speak of one without the other. So today I want to ask you from Deuteronomy chapter 17. Yes, Deuteronomy chapter 17, a, a chapter that we're going to use in this Christmas in July service to ask the question, who is this king? If you recall, the Magi came to look for king, followed the star to see who is this king of glory. The shepherds on the hill were blinded almost by the light of these angels who proclaimed to them, fear not, proclaimed the birth of the Lord. And so today we're going to be using Deuteronomy chapter 17 to answer a question, just who is the king? There's a standard laid out in Deuteronomy 17 of an earthly king and the qualifications of this earthly king. And then there is a description of the king of kings and the Lord of lords who surpass any earthly king. And we're at the point in Deuteronomy, as if we're not very careful, it is like drinking water from a fire hose or a fire hydrant. There's so much going on in terms of the laws that it would be easy for us to become sidetracked or discouraged. You ever been reading through a reading plan in the Bible and you get through Deuteronomy or through Leviticus and it seems almost as if you're bogged down to some degree? So it's easy to become discouraged and it's easy to become sidetracked. But the first thing we often say when we come to portions of Scripture where there is repetition, as particularly the laws and the commands that we find in the Old Covenant is this. We say this to ourselves. If you're a student of the Bible, you say this to yourself. These laws are not for us. But in reality, they help us know and appreciate more the work of Jesus. Have you been reading through these laws that have been laid out and thought to yourself, thank God for the work of Jesus? 
I don't have to come knee deep in blood and offer a sacrifice now for my sins to be covered. What we see in the laws, moral, civil, ceremonial, or otherwise, is what Jesus has come to fulfill, and that is no small order. He has earned every bit by his very nature alone the title of King of Kings and Lord of Lords, but so much more when we see King Jesus conquering death, hell, the grave, fulfilling prophecy and the law itself. Not only do we have a conquering king people, but we have a sufficient suffering servant, a sympathetic savior, a king who is a sympathetic savior who knows your struggles. He knows what you're going through this morning. It is like thinking of Christ as king and servant simultaneously, much like we would think of, of Jesus as as human and yet God, we think as far as the office of Jesus as king and also servant simultaneously. I want you to listen to this offering from Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. Therefore he, Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every respect he put on flesh so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest and the servant of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, yet he did not sin, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Church, is your king worthy of worship? Do you think that your Brothers in Christ think that King Jesus is worthy of worship? Where are the pockets of people this morning? Is your king worthy of worship? Now the reasoning from Hebrews, it was not the cloud of witnesses who did this. It was not the angels of heaven who suffered and died. But the author of Hebrews deductively and inductively concludes that this high priest is none other than Christ Jesus. Today I want to focus on the duty of the forecasted kings to come in Israel's history from Deuteronomy on. But I want to do a little bit of surveying from the first few verses in Deuteronomy 17. But I'll ask you, in the honoring of the reading of God's Word, if you'll stand with me, mark your place in verse 14. As we answer this question, just who is the king? For verse 14, God's Word says this, When you come to the land that your Lord God is giving you, and you possess it, and you dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose, one from whom amongst your brothers you set as king over you. And you may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother, only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way. 
and he shall not acquire many wives for himself. At least his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excess silver and gold. But when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a book and a copy of this law that is approved by the Levitical priest. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, and he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of the law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart might not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to his right or to his left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his precious word. You may be seated. Now we are going to return to those verses in just a moment. But what I would like to do, if you will follow me from verse 1, I would like to survey from verse 1 down to verse 14 so that we are at least touching every portion of this chapter in some way. I would ask you, if you will, let's follow along. The words will be, of course, in your copy of God's Word. So follow along with me, if you will, from your copy of God's Word in Deuteronomy chapter 7, 17. These verses are a continuation from chapter 16 that ended with forbidden forms of worship or what would be considered idolatrous paraphernalia. You can't even have the pedestal that an idol was set upon. You can't even have the bushes that would have decorated your false idol or your god. You can't even have any paraphernalia around you that would draw your mind away from Yahweh or the one true God. You know how a person can be arrested just for having drug paraphernalia? Same can be thought of here. Don't even have anything that would tempt you or trap you in this paganistic Worship, don't even have the tree that is used in paganistic idol worship in your possession. Don't even have the website still saved on your computer that would leave you to a pornographic website or the number of an old boyfriend in your phone that would tempt you. And I know you might be saying, preacher, you are comparing apples to oranges, but you get the idea. Toss away anything that could label you as an idol worshiper or anything that would draw your attention to the holiness of our triune God. Amen. So jump back with me to verse 1 through 8. Before we get into this, let me just say, at the onset, I am grateful for the mercy of God. Let's say that together. I am grateful for the mercy of God. And I do not just throw that sentence around. Why? Because I don't feel much like being stoned in the street for my sinfulness. I don't feel like... I I don't know about you, but I don't want to be stoned in the street for my past wickedness and my idolatry and my propensity to, uh, to sin and, and, and my propensity towards wick, wickedness. That's exactly what we see in verse 1, chapter 17, verse 1 and 2, those first portions of Scripture. And what we find in here is there's a connection, of course, would be that Jesus would ultimately become this spotless lamb. And that his sacrifice is to be without blemish. The perfect sacrifice without sin. 
I want you to know in these first two verses as they were commanded to take the sinner, the wicked person who was uh, guilty of idolatrous worship, they were to be stoned in the street. And as we look towards in the future, we see that only this dealing with sin would leave this camp or body to be without sin. And over the years, as Christ we see as His perfect sacrifice, we learn something about the very nature of God. What does the very nature of God demand in holiness? When dealing with atonement, when dealing with absolution, nothing but 100% perfection will do. I don't know about you, but I'm not perfect. I can't perfectly atone or absolve my own sin. It would only be someone who was sinless. It amazes me. The surveys that are taken that think that Jesus somehow sinned. If that's the case, brothers and sisters, we are all lost. We are all lost. For verse 2 to 7, all the matters that we see for judgment were to be laid out before the priests and the judges, and they are to be term determined by them. And all submit to their decision. If a person was found to be wicked or sinful, such as worshiping other gods, they were considered an abomination and stoned to death. Again, that's why I say today, thank God for the grace of Jesus. But I want you to know that the penalty for sin is just as harsh today as it was then. What do I mean by that? Well, what is the wages of sin? Death. Whether in this life or in the, in the next. But even though we live under the grace and the mercy of Jesus, there is a residual notion of truth that still lingers here. And the bringing out and the calling out of sin amongst the body. We find that in Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20. We know these verses as dealing with church discipline. Somebody has an issue in the church, somebody is in willful disobedience and sin, we go to that person, brother to brother, sister to sister, we go to them, we say, what's going on? We see you're struggling in sin, what's happening, willful sin, if they will not hear you, you take a witness or two with you. If they won't hear you then, you bring them before the church. If you don't hear you then, the Bible says you treat them as a sinner. Still need to hear the gospel. Still need to be saved, but you consider them as a person that would be lost. And in Matthew 18, 15 through 20, there is a parallel to what we read in Deuteronomy 17, 1 through 2. Because, here's the, here's the thing about sin. Sin, when it is left unchecked, is like leaven in the loaf. It affects the rest of the body. Something must be done to protect the body from the damaging effects of sin. Now, church discipline, when done correctly, when done rightfully, when done scripturally, is a beautiful thing. When we see restoration is a beautiful picture. But we don't like it. Why? Because somebody has to tell you that you're in sin. And we don't like people to tell us that we're in sin, do we? We don't like to tell about people to tell us we're wrong and that there's something we need correcting in our walk with the Lord.
But if we are seeking truth in love, if we are seeking to obey the Lord out of love and worship, and if we are His, we will say, God, forgive me. Something must be done for the damaging effect and protecting the body of Christ from the damaging effects of sin. It isn't stoning, praise the Lord. For Israel is under the judge. It was the sinner that was to be stoned for the church. It is the steps of church discipline. Again, when done correctly and scripturally, it can be a beautiful thing to see. And by the way, both cases, there was a motive of restoration. Historically speaking, people did not rush out to pick up stones. Remember the words of Jesus, don't you? What did Jesus say? What did he say? The one who has no sin, right, can pick up this stone and throw it. He who is out sin, throw the first stone. Now what is Jesus ultimately saying? Now one better have their ducks in a row. One better have the beam out of their own eye before they cast that stone. If you'll notice in Deuteronomy 17, 6, there is a calling of two witnesses. And what does Jesus say in Matthew 18 and 16? A calling for two witnesses. All in the call for what? Restoration. And protecting the church body from the damaging effects of sin. But to purge the body when no resolution can be found... It is no easy task for the body of Christ. And so many times we don't even engage in a person who is living in gross sin because we think that somehow we are engaging or we are infringing on their individuality. And all the time the church body needs, needs restoration in many, in many cases. The priest and the judges are the ones under the care of of the elders who were to call for justice and for mercy for Israel and beyond. And these are drastic times to ensure people would have a remnant who would likewise produce Messiah. So the stoning as that we see is all drastic in its timeline and in its history for the raising up of a remnant that therefore would produce Messiah. Now in the drastic day that we live in, in the sense of the church, there is this overwhelming sense that the world is watching you as Christians. As Christ followers, the world is watching you. They do not need to see arguing and bickering and division. They need to see unity and peace and love and joy and admonition and gentleness. See, we don't know how to admonish. The first thing we do is we pick up stones. And so the world is watching and to have a person that is living or operating in sin that is unchecked without admonition in the body is harmful to the church and it gives no glory to God. But who can exercise such judgment? Who can exercise? Who's qualified? We would say, well, none. None is qualified in the sense so God's Word becomes that staple. God's Word becomes the framework for correction. And even if we were to say, well, who's, who is qualified to handle 
such calling out, it would be those whose life is above reproach. For verse 18 through 13, there's this calling of a king and demanding for a king is to be chosen by one of their brothers, cannot be a foreigner, cannot be a stranger to that appointed office. He will not multiply the goods in his house, horses that would cause them to return to Egypt. He is not to multiply his wives or money, etc. He is to have a copy of God's Word. He is to internalize God's Word, read it all of his days, so that his heart might not be boasted or lifted up above his brothers. Well, what I want to do in those verses from verse 14 through 20 is do this. I want to look at the vision of a true king. What does a true king look like? Now, before we begin, I want you to know that every king in God's Word that was appointed by the people, God or otherwise, has flaws, sins, and failures. Okay, I don't want to look like King David... I, don't, I want to look like Jesus. I don't want to look like Daniel. I don't want to look like David throwing the stones. I want to look like Jesus. The hero of the Bible is Jesus. There is flaws, there is sins, and there is failure in every king but one. Jesus is the true, eternal, and holy king. This we know. The day that we live in, there is no Messiah presidents. There is no Messiah kings that exist today. There is no true linkage between a president and a savior. So quit putting all of your chips and betting on politicians to make your life better. I want you to listen very carefully to this. The only time that life will get perpetually better is when we see Jesus. In case you did not know, we are pilgrims passing through. And in case we did not realize, this world is not made for you. This world is not made for the Christ follower. The follower of Jesus was not made to be a slave to this world, but a child of the King. But we think that we set up camp like we're going to be here forever. And we grab on to things that don't matter in the scheme of eternity. He says in God's Word, when you come to the land that your Lord your God has given you, and you possess it, you'll dwell in it, and I will, I must set a king over, you'll say, I want, to, I want a king over me like all the nations around me. Okay, I want to be like the Joneses next door. I want to, I want to be like them. And God will allow it with one condition that he himself will appoint that king. God will choose it. One from amongst your brothers, he shall set a king over you. You're not to put a foreigner on the throne, one who is not your brother, but, but one who is among you. And in the same way, these words become prophetic. Moses is writing this out, and we don't see this for hundreds of years as we've as we see King Saul called. Israel had gotten, I guess, tired of the judges. And they determined they wanted to be like the nations around them. They want a king too. 
And in some way they are prophetic words. Israel will see the surrounding nations who have a king and they'll cry out for a king to rule over them instead of the judges. And by the way, this is not so much of a prophecy as it is a reflection of the nature of humanity. We'll see something that our neighbors have and we want and we will covet after those things. We as a church body will see a church down the road doing something and hey, we want to be like them. What works for them might not work for us. But you know what does work? The gospel. That works. Programs don't work all the time and they fail and they fade away. The gospel is what works. So Israel will say, hey, we want a king like the surrounding nations. It is a reflection of the heart of humanity. We are people who want what other people have and we are just not satisfied with what God has given to us. I don't know if you know this church, those who might be listening today, but Piney Grove has a lot to be thankful for. A lot to be thankful for in this community. You know, I've had people drive up sometimes in farmland and come up to the church and say, wow, I wasn't expecting to see a church this size and this active in this way. So be thankful that God has called this church and this community to serve and serve her well. He says, okay, you want a king like the other nations? He's to be an Israelite, same race, same religion. Why? To preserve the purity of established worship as well as being a type of Christ, a spiritual king, one of his brethren, where the throne of David will not dissipate, will not pass. He must not acquire many horses for himself. What is that about? Cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord just said, Lord God said to you, you shall never return that way. Never return that way again. He shall not acquire many wives for himself, and his heart will not be turned away, nor shall he acquire for himself excess of silver and gold. Hint, hint, Solomon. When he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in, in a book a copy of the law approved by the Levitical priests. This ruler was to have the word of God by his side at all times. He must know the holy scriptures and live in them. Now, verse 16, this idea of horses and the people would flee back to Egypt. They had all they, all they wanted to eat, even though they were in bondage. But I must say, a person who is in Christ as king will never stray. And what I mean by that, they will never fall out of fellowship if they are truly in to Christ. Now, verse 19, And it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life. This is the word of God. He may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of law and these statutes and doing them, and that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to his right hand or to his left hand, that he may continue long in the kingdom, he and his children in Israel. Now, these are attributes that are laid out for this earthly king. But what shall we say the character of the king of kings? And as we, as the servants of King Jesus, what must we say of our duty? And what must we say of our characteristics as we serve the king? If you have ever searched the phrase, I challenge you to do this. If you have some reference Bible, chain reference Bible, 
if you have a concordance, or if you have a way to research scripture or refer, re, uh, research phrases or sentences in the, in the Bible, I'll challenge you to do this. Here's a phrase. Uh, write it down, if you will. Take it home and, and research it for yourself. Here's the phrase. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, if you were to search that phrase in the ESV translation of God's Word, you will find it listed 32 times. Depending on your translation, it will hover around the 30, 32 mark. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. And most of the time, they were describing kings of Jerusalem and Judah. So the king over Israel was called to be close to Yahweh, to hold fast to the word of God. And the difference between this earthly king and the king of kings is that Jesus is not only for the Jew, but for the Gentile, for the nations. If you will remember Galatians 3.28, it says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is either there's no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So praise the Lord, Jesus broke down the partition of division. When the veil was rent from top to bottom, we could say part of Jesus' ministry was tearing away this Jew-Gentile tension and the gospel of Jesus became for the whosoever will believe and be saved. No Jew, no Gentile by themselves, but a unison of people from every tongue, tribe, nation, color, creed. Instead of the people fleeing and going back to the old way of life, accumulating for themselves horses that belonged to the king and stealing them and heading back to Egypt and returning to the old, old way of life, those in Christ Jesus will not leave him if they are truly with him. Now we might stumble and we might fall along the way, but we will never ever go back to that old way of life and live in that old way of life if you are Reborn in Jesus. Where the people were looking for a way back, they had plenty of horses to escape. Those in King Jesus, instead of looking how we might go back to the old way of life, we look how we might draw closer to Him. And where the Word of God has to be close to the King so that He could saturate His life in it, so that He could know God's Word and then live out His Word, if you read the prologue of John, what does it tell us about Jesus? It tells us that Jesus is the Word made flesh. We sang of it this morning. That He dwelt among us. Became flesh and it dwelt among us, tabernacled among us. The very Word made flesh, the very message of God in human form, the Logos, or the reason for being. In philosophy, there is this term um, ontology, which means being. So Jesus is the very ontological reason that we exist. The very reason for being, the very reason for creation. The very reason that the stars were slung in the heavens. 
and the, and, and the air that you breathe is because of Jesus. So the earthly king was to hide the word in his heart so that he would not sin against God. Jesus is sinless. He is the sinless eternal king of glory. One of the most amazing chapters in the canon of scripture is Revelation chapter 19. I love reading Revelation chapter 19 because what we find is the vision of Christ, the warrior king. And all this horse that we see Jesus riding in Revelation 19 and verse 16, it says on his robe and on his thigh was a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. If you were to read Genesis chapter 1 through 2, there is a term that is ascribed to God as Elohim, meaning that he is the God of all the created orders. It is a, mag is a term of majesty. It is, a, it is a majestic term that it is described to God. It is like saying that God is the God of all creation. And in this terminology, the Logos, writing as he returns, he is the King of kings and Lord of lords. It is like saying he is the King over kings and he is the Lord over lords and he will reign supreme. Amen? Now, King Jesus calls for his people to repent and be pure before him. He returns. He ain't returning as a babe in a manger, wrapped in ragged swaddling clothes. He's not returning as a suffering servant to be beaten on the cross, to be crucified. No. He's coming to judge the, the wicked. When Christ rules, there is purity. Whatever he says, we are determined to live out. Think of the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done as it is in heaven. So here's the thing. Kingdom people, who are you and I in Jesus, kingdom people submit their own will to the will of the king. To the will of the king. Submitting to the will of the king will change our perspectives. So we will seek to please him and not the world. Again, we are not created to live and function and thrive in this world, in the system of this world where there is the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. We are not built, made for this present world. We are not called to look good before the world but to be pleasing to him. Listen, I, I don't care one bit if the world thinks that I'm not social enough or have the best things. I don't care if somebody thinks that my youngins ought to go out trick-or-treating. They might look at me as being not social. I, don't, I do not care if I, am, if I don't look social enough. I don't care if, I, if I'm driving a Ford Escape that was built in 2005. I do not care. At the end of the day, if a person sees me lacking in that way, guess what I'll do? I'll sleep like a baby knowing that I abide in King Jesus. This will change our perspectives. When it comes to anticipation of the return of the king, our king is returning to a kingdom that is not yet an inaugurated kingdom where Christ has planted his flag and has said and declared, this is mine. 
The kingdom may not yet be fully complete as we see it, but it has been established and will be established forever. In fact, Luke the Evangelist wrote in chapter 1, verse 32, that he will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will rule and reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom there will be no end. So, if King Jesus is the Lord of your life, then it will change your values as well. Perspective, your values. What we think used to be important in life doesn't seem to have the same luster anymore. I can tell you, I could drink a Molson ice that was longer than my arm. I could smoke a cigarette that was longer than my leg. Now, if you do those things, I'm not preaching against those things. I'm just telling you that God changed my perspectives. They don't have the same luster as they did. What should be of great value in our lives as Christ follower are the things that matter eternally. It is not that the simple things of life are not important. I enjoy a good ball game. I enjoy listening to good music. I enjoy the things in life. We're not saying that those things are not important, but they should never take the place of serving the king. Abiding in Christ will change our standards, will change our priorities. Sometimes, many times, the real test of a person's standards is how they spend their time and how they spend their money. Jesus spoke straight to these terms of the kingdom. He did not disgrace the value of work. He did not lessen the need for physical goods. No, he didn't. I think it is a good thing to work hard. A lesson I believe that this culture has lost. The world around us has lost this notion to work hard. You don't believe me? Check the unemployment rate. But here's the thing. Jesus said this. You seek the kingdom of God first. Seek His righteousness First, and what does it say? He will add these things to you that you need. The Lord Jesus certainly changes and moves in a person's life if we give him all that we have. He provides a purpose. He provides a mission for everyone of his people. Where the earthly king sinned, where the earthly king failed, our king lives and reigns in the heart of those who call him Lord. See, in the days of Deuteronomy, it was written, when, it, when Deuteronomy was written, the people would eventually seek a theocracy. This is where God would, would ultimately rule a nation. And I must say that in the history of history, there has never been a true sense of theocracy. Only the following of Scripture to some regard. There has never really truly been a true theocracy where the Lord himself ruled and reigned. This is where God would rule and reign over the people. But a true, a true theocracy is Christ ruling and reigning over the hearts. It's like saying, who sits on the throne of a heart? Is it the world or is it the king? Is it, does the world have my heart or does King Jesus? So true theocracy in the sense of theocracy where God ruling and reigning is in the sense of God ruling and reigning on my heart and in my life, everything that I have. Loving the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, body, spirit, everything that you have and loving your neighbor as yourself, as King Jesus sits on your heart and mind in a true theocracy. So, is he king? 
Have you offered your life to the king? And ultimately, he wants his followers to extend this message of the kingdom to the ends of the earth so that people would have the opportunity to give their allegiance to him as their savior and as their king. We find this in the Great Commission, Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. That all power has been given to him in heaven and in earth. And he calls them to go out and to make disciples, to baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And then he says this, that he is with you to the end of the age. Your king is with you. Amen? Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you today bowing before your presence. And we use the terminology that you are king, but even in that terminology it fails miserably to express the other holiness and sovereignty that you possess. For the kings of this world rise and fall on your beckoning call. Where governors and princes are brought up by your grand design. Father, we say King of kings and Lord of lords. But even in saying that, Lord, it still falls short. Human language, to some degree, cannot ultimately define your holiness and your sovereignty. So we do the best we can to describe your goodness, holiness, and power. Father, I pray today if there is someone under the sound of my voice who has never bowed the knee to Jesus, the Bible tells us that there will come a time in history where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. We pray that we bow our knee on this, on this side of eternity and offer our lives up to the King. There's one in here, Lord, who has never been forgiven of their sins in the true sense, Father, that they would today would repent and come to know you as, as Lord. You died on the cross and you rose again, Lord, so that we might have freedom in Jesus. Our sins would be liberated and Jesus would be our treasure. Father, if there's one in here who, who wants to proclaim you the rest of their life as king and serve you, Maybe, maybe in their serving of the king it has been, it has been short. I pray that they, Lord, would, would lay it before you today. We see this comparison between the earthly king and, and you as king. And we give you the praise for who you are today. Pray it now in Jesus' name. Amen.